2: It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us.
0: Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio and you are joined today by presenters, myself, Jacob Antwaffer.
3: And me, Zane Alcorn. Here you go.
0: All right. Now, before um, we get into the kind of program, um, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR and Green Left Radio today is being broadcast to you from the wandering land of the Kulin Nation. i like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty has never been ceded. And that FreeCR and Green Left Radio is committed um, to supporting aboriginal first nation sovereignty and their fight back for justice and well that actually is probably an appropriate way to kind of lead into i guess having a guess a bit of a kind of discussion um, about i guess the kind of main kind of headline news story that i think has kind of dominated the um, that has kind of dominated discussion for a lot of left-wing and progressive people, but that is, um, the recent resignation of, um, Senator, um, um, Lydia Forb, resignation from the Greens, that, um, from the federal Greens, um, and she is now standing at, and she is now, um, considered an independent, um, um, Senator in, in, within, within the upper house. Now, Without going, I guess, into sort of all the kind of internal politics, um, which I think actually has been kind of like the discussion that has kind of dominated the kind of, you know, the kind of mainstream sort of corporate media, a lot of the kind of mainstream sort of coverage on the resignation has really sort of focused a lot on the kind of internal sort of machinations and, and of course there's been a lot of attacks on Lydia from, um, from the, from the ALP and I think even sections of the Liberal Party, including sort of making kind of arguments that, you know, she has no right to, uh, stand as a, as a senator if she's resigned from the party, which I think is, to be honest, I think is a bit hypocritical because, I mean, I think these same, this sort of same politicians never have never said the same about, you know, Never went to the same degree of criticism when it came to people such as Jackie Lambie, who um, I think stood as what party was that again, Zane? Oh, uh, JLN, I think. Oh, uh, Jackie
3: J- Lambie Network.
0: Oh no no no! Um, oh, she, she
3: used to be part of the Palmer Party.
0: Yeah, she was part of the Palmer Party and resigned. There was never that. um There was never that sort of um, sort of a level of kind of attack. And also at the end of the day, like I would argue that you know it is part of the rules of the Westminster <laughs> system. Um, I don't support, really, the Westminster system, and at the end of the day, there's a lot of undemocratic things about the nature of our parliament that I think are worthy of more attention Mm. that the same people, I think, you know, who are kind of making this critique of Lydia wouldn't even really acknowledge or agree with anyway, so... I think probably the, the, most, the most positive thing that I think we should take away from this, and I think, I think this is where probably a lot of our listeners and probably a lot of presenters on FreeCR are excited about the potential development of this, um, is the fact that Lydia has resigned from the Greens on the basis that she wants to represent the grassroots black sovereign movement um, movement in Parliament. She essentially sees herself as wanting to be... That voice um, for that for the for the grassroots um, First Nations um, um, movement, and I think that is I think that's just an, an incredible kind of development in a sense because I think it does raise the possibility of a you know a stronger First Nations uh, movement that is in a sense independent from all the political parties, um, and in fact the fact that Lydia has resigned from the Greens I think opens up that kind of political space. Yeah, so Zane, what do you kind of, any sort of comments you want, you want to add to that?
3: Well, I guess it's, um, probably one thing I would say is Lydia Thorpe is someone who, who came into the Greens already having quite well formed ideas around Aboriginal land rights, black sovereignty, and the way forward for the, the struggle for self-determination for Aboriginal communities and, and decolonisation. Uh, it's not like she has reactively decided that she doesn't like the voice on a whim, having made her way into Parliament and just looked at that proposal on its own. Her critique of the voice is is really based in a, a deeply rooted approach to um, black politics and I think um, Lydia Thorpe really entered the Greens and, and ran as a candidate in the state elections, and then later became a senator for the a, a Senate candidate for the Greens, off the back of the Jabberung um, campaign to save uh, a sacred land and and trees up near Ararat from this highway extension that was being built and we we covered that at the time so did a lot of other programs on 3CR and so I think you know people didn't necessarily have a crystal ball back then and know the full I don't know extent of of what was going to be happening in federal politics in the year 2023 Uh, so yeah I think that the situation did end up becoming untenable uh because Lydia Thorpe's position was quite different to that of the greens. I think it's noteworthy that it was pretty um respectful break up Public statements from um Adam Bant's office and from the Greens have been pretty respectful towards Lydia Thorpe and back the other way, so I think that's pretty significant, it, it, when there is uh splits or divisions like this, often they can be particularly messy and toxic, this one I think was pretty clean, and there seems to be still pretty good dialogue between Lydia Thorpe and uh, the Greens, so that's significant, and uh I think, yeah, it, this, there's all these people out there hating on Lydia Thorpe, and I've uh, been having some discussions with a uh a unionist who's around the Labour Party and, uh, they were alleging that, yeah, Lydia Thorpe is, is kind of grandstanding and not serious about sovereignty because if she was, she would support The Voice and rah, rah. And I just think those people really, um, are taking a very partisan line and whatever your position on The Voice is, you should respect The right of people like Lydia Thorpe to take a dissenting position and you should listen to her views and consider them ahead of this referendum. You shouldn't just write off Lydia Thorpe's views because on some superficial level you don't like them or because some mainstream media coverage said that you shouldn't like her views. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Very well, very well said, um, Zane. And I, I think probably the last kind of point I'll just conclude on, because I think we'll have to move straight to announcement in, and into, I guess, first interview with the program, but we'll hopefully have more discussion about this, is I think, I mean, I think Lydia's kind of role in Parliament has to be celebrated on, on the fact that I think she is pushing the envelope in terms of the discussion on First Nations rights. Um, because I think if it wasn't for Lydia, um, you know, for many progressive people and left-wing people who are like myself, um, who are very critical of the voice department, um, and we wouldn't be able to actually have a, have a real kind of dialogue in actually asserting, uh, inserting that critical perspective. So I think Lydia has to be congratulated for pushing the debate forward into a much more radical direction than it otherwise would have been. Yeah. And
3: it's like that idea socialists talk about of using Parliament as a platform to push radical ideas. That's 100% what Lydia Thorpe is doing with her position in the Senate. So, yeah.
0: All right. Well, we'll just conclude that discussion because we've got to go on to our first part of the interview, but this won't be the end of the discussion and we'll hopefully be able to discuss it uh, in more detail on future programs or maybe even later in the program um, because it's another news story I think that it's quite important that we want to cover in this context. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on Free cr 855 AM. Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice, For multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org, email info at bi-alliance.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. I'm All right. You're listening to Green Left Radio and, and on Free cr 855 AM. And for our first interview for the program, um, we are very happy to be joined today by Graham Matthews, who is a member of Socialist Alliance um, and is also a regular contributor to Green Left on, you know, questions of the economy, in fact, and also that and disability rights. And Graham just recently, I guess, wrote a bit of a kind of response um, to Jim Chalmers. Um, Jim Chalmers is uh, currently, I guess, our federal kind of um, federal treasurer and has recently kind of, you know, pose this sort of idea of uh, values kind of based kind of capitalism. Um, in a sense, he's been kind of sketching the kind of um, the kind of reform kind of agenda that the uh, ALP um, now that they have gained power within the federal band is looking at implementing. So yeah, we've have Graham on the program who's recently written a response to this within Green Left to kind of actually have a have a bit of a kind of discussion about it. Um, so yeah, good morning Graham.
4: Good morning, Jacob. How are you
0: going? Yeah, I'm good. So I, I guess the kind of first kind of question is, um, you, you, um, I want to kind of hear your kind of response to Jim Chalmers kind of reform agenda, you know, which he's described as values-based capitalism. Why do you think that this is not sufficient enough for both working people and, and the environment? It's a good question. I
4: think the first Way to look at this. The Labor Party, when in government, uh, tells us a lot of stories about what it would like us, how it would like us to judge what they want to do. Um, and at the same time, it's very, it's rather more important to actually judge what they are doing. Now, Labor has been in power now for, um, eight months, um, since, uh, in like nine months, uh, practically since, um, Uh, May last year Um, and in that time what we've seen is inflation um, rising to 7.8% but at the same time wages and and, and one of the issues that um, Jim Chalmers talks about he talks about the three crises that have uh, affected Australian capitalism and I won't go into that in detail but the, the current crisis that we're all living through is the inflation crisis where prices Uh, continue to rise, yet our wages and benefits are simply not keeping up, um, particularly wages. So, as I said in the December quarter, uh, inflation rose to 7.8%, yet at the same time, wages are only hovering around 3.1%. And I certainly... I don't know about your listeners, but certainly my wages haven't gone up since July last year, and um, that was, I think, only 2%. So there's many of us who are really struggling to uh, keep up with the, uh, the rising uh, cost of everything, uh, pretty much, particularly um, some staples like um, uh, food, let alone rent. Um, yet um, the, the government doesn't really want to talk about that. They don't want to talk about real, real wage rises. Uh, in fact, he only talks about uh, nominal wage rises. Now, <clears throat> just to demonstrate, I suppose, how little uh the um the, the Labor government has or intends to to deal with that issue. Uh in the October federal budget, uh the budget papers indicated that their expectation is that inflation will still be around six percent uh by June this year, so in another four months. Uh and at the same time that rate wages will only rise to around about three point seven five percent. And we've also seen um Throughout the coalition government, um, we've seen uh massive overestimations of how much wages will increase. So it's um, it may be the case that uh wages rise that high, but it may not as well. At the same time, Chalmers talks about um how his uh, or how the Labour Party will um, uh improve environmental outcomes. They, um, they they talk about the uh the Rudd um, Gillard era um mechanism for uh for guiding investment. Um the uh the, the clean or the um you know, green um, um, green environment mechanism. I can't think sorry, my apologies, I can't quite think of the name exactly. Um but at the same time they're presiding over an economy which is on the back of the uh the inflated prices for coal and uh, liquefied natural gas that are coming out of the war in Ukraine, they're presiding over a massive increase um, in coal and gas exports uh, from Australia. I think even um, Adam Banff, the leader of the Green, pointed out that the, the Labor Party is more than happy to not just preside over a continuation of Australia's uh, massive export trade, of uh, coal and gas, but in fact to continue to open new coal mines and new gas fields. So it's um, it's intensely hypocritical um, of the Labor government, of Jim Chalmers as its treasurer, to claim that they're taking steps to improve standards of living or indeed trying to improve the situation for working people and the environment, while at the same time presiding over a government which is um, looking at effectively wages going backwards in real terms not just simply stagnating but going backwards significantly um, and massive increases in the, um, the export of um, coal and natural gas
0: um, I want to kind of hear kind of briefly and you don't have to go in too much sort of detail but I guess you've sort of you've covered some of um, guess some of this but I mean, one of, the, one of the things that, I guess, Jim Sharma sort of argues and um, is that he kind of looks very positively at the legacy of both the Keating era and Kevin Rudd. And I guess, what do you think is very much, in brief, I guess, the kind of, the, offen- the shrew kind of, what do you think of the kind of legacy of those governments from, I guess, a kind of socialist sort of perspective? It's
4: a very good, it's a very good question. Um, looking back at the Keating, in fact, the whole Keating era, uh, that really introduced neoliberalism into Australia in the sense that the Accord um, and, and uh, presided over a very long period of, again, uh, real wages going backwards. And if real wages are going backwards and people are doing the same work, effectively that means that the profitability uh, and so profits are increasing. And at the same time, uh, you know, as we saw... Uh, profits skyrocket and, in fact, um, wealth, the wealth disparity increased massively under Hawke and Keating. We're seeing the same thing occur now. Um, Hawke and Keating also presided over mass privatisation. The um, Commonwealth Serum uh, Laboratories, CSL, um, which is a, a, an extremely profitable company on the Australian Stock Exchange now, uh, was publicly owned. Uh, at the time of um, uh, Hawke came to power in 1983. That was the first uh, public institution that they privatised. It's now... (laughs) Shares are are worth well over $100 um, on the Australian Stock Exchange, and it makes um, enormous profit for um, uh, individual capitalists at the expense of Australian people. Imagine if we still had uh, the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories in public hands. Imagine the impact that would have had... Um, on Australia's response to the COVID pandemic. They privatised the Commonwealth Bank and, um, the, uh, the, uh, quarters and laid the groundwork for, um, the Howard government to privatise, um, to privatise, uh, Telstra when it came into power. Um, the Rudd and Gillard era, um, I think it's important to note that, um, Chalmers was in fact in, um, The the Wayne Swan's office through much of that period. Uh, He was a senior advisor uh, as an economist. And um, this was the era of the introduction of the kind of so-called values-based capitalism or guided um, investment that uh, Chalmers talks about. And particularly, the the particular example I want to uh, reflect on is the NDIS. Um, I'm an NDIS participant for full disclosure but um ndis uh, where there are some positive aspects it is again a, a privatization agenda uh where um government funds are being used to prop up um private uh companies um the vast majority of the uh the ndis providers um which provide the participants are uh, private companies private for profit companies and uh they, they uh, exist purely on um government funding Childcare is another. Um, the government is not interested in um, establishing a, uh, uh, a public or indeed a community-based childcare sector. Uh, all it's doing through its um, massive increase in funding for that area is effectively guaranteeing the profits of uh, private companies. So that's the essence um, of the, the Hawke and Keating, and in fact the Rudd and Gillard era, is finding new and innovative ways. To make
3: capitalism more profitable, and unfortunately, largely at the expense of working people. Uh, Graham, how you going? It's Zane here. Um, Hi, yeah, yeah, good. Um, I think, um, yeah, the Labour Party likes to position itself as the arbiter of what's, um, what's. Realistic and tries to portray traditional socialist ideas as naive stuff like renationalizing the banks or the electricity sector that was privatised, uh, public investment, massive investment in public housing, etc. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's it's ironic that people like Jim Chalmers who want to call socialist naive uh, aren't they being a bit naive about saying that? Uh, they can civilise capitalism, and implement this values-based capitalism, or aren't they being yeah. naive to suggest that carbon trading will work? So, yeah, if you could just comment on that, and what what is an alternative model to this la- this values-based capitalism?
4: Well, I go beyond describing them as naive, and I I'd, I I'd, I'd actually say they're two-faced. Um, on the one hand, they try to trumpet the uh, the very minor changes they make, so they've obviously increased the um, the the, um, the carbon target since they've come into power but as you say the the, the way they seek to achieve that is by offset so effectively allowing um, large um, australian firms that uh, emit greenhouse gases not so much to um, curb um, or indeed stop uh, those emissions but rather simply offset them uh, with um, generally speaking offshore dodgy offshore programs you know which might be um, preserving sections of forest and so forth to try to absorb those um, uh, those emissions, rather than actually taking the action necessary to adopt a, um, a a different a different path. But it's also important to I think recognise and harking back to the previous um, issue I raised, um, and this is something which the the former Liberal government uh, harped on over and over again. That the total emissions within Australia are a fraction of um, uh, greenhouse gas um, emissions the world over but the point is that Australia's coal and gas exports don't get counted um, against um, Australia's emission target um, Australia can continue to pump out coal and uh, uh, you know uh, uh, gas at a record rate and yet um, at the same time it doesn't uh, register on the formal, um, scale of uh, Australia's greenhouse gas emissions. Yet, were Australia to wind back and phase out those exports, that would make a significant impact um, on the uh, the, the uh, carbon emissions uh, internationally, and would set uh, an important, um, uh, an extremely important, um, you know, it would be an extremely important step. And lead the way for other, um, countries to take, to, to, take place. In terms of renationalization and so forth, um, <laughs> again, I mean, as far as, um, uh, as far as Chalmers and others within the Labor Party are concerned, that's not even necessarily on the agenda. Um, they're, they're only interested in providing effectively subsidies. To ensure the profitability of um, a capitalist industry, um, again, it's it's not so much. Um, I wouldn't describe it as naive, but I think it's just simply not a story that they're interested in telling. Mm. There's also, I think, looking at the, the the concrete record of this government. It is only eight months old, um, but at the so eight or nine months old. But at the same time, it's taken decisions which have had massive impacts, particularly on those. Um, who aren't doing quite so well. Um, For instance, they decided to halve the number of uh, Medicare-funded visits to a psychologist one can get from 20 to 10. Um, They've decided to withdraw $65 million from homelessness funding, uh, meaning that um, those, generally speaking, community organisations which support uh, people at risk of homelessness are now looking at um, having to sack staff at a time when the threat of homelessness, particularly for those um, facing skyrocketing rents, has never been higher. They they make uh, they've promised I think to build perhaps um, twenty or thirty thousand um, social housing dwellings um, over the, the the life of the government. At the same time, when that barely makes a scratch in the, the genuine demand for social housing. Um, for social and public housing, which exists in the community, um, I mean, it's that they, they trumpet the very small reforms that they make, but at the same time, they um, uh, they, they they make significant cuts to um, the standard of living, particularly for um, for those who uh, are struggling, and um, you know, end up um, pushing their investments to ensure the profitability of particularly um, very large business
0: hmm. I right. had well um, Graham um, I thought that would possibly be a good way to conclude the kind of interview because I'm aware you um, might have to get going kind of soon but if you have any final comments um, that you'd like to make feel free but otherwise I thought yeah I think you've I think this has been a very good kind of discussion and um, yeah thank you very much for being on our program
4: thank you look very quickly it's very important that um, Australian people tossed out the, um, the, the Morrison government, um, you know, that was a, certainly a worse government than the current Labor one, which we have. But at the same time, the job's not over. Uh, we need to continue to be vigilant. We need to continue to campaign. Um, the Labor government can be sensitive to um, uh, public, uh, public agitation. So keep up the fight. We need to keep these bastards honest. Um, we need to develop a real alternative. Uh, and that real alternative, in my opinion, uh, is socialism
0: word. All right. Thank you very much. Um, Graham. Thanks, Jacob. Uh, Yes, that's
3: uh, Graham Matthews there. Uh, Graham's a member of Socialist Alliance, and Graham has an article in the current uh, edition, and it's up on the website, uh, titled, Jim Chalmers, Value-Based Capitalism Won't Fly. All
0: right. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and I'm just going to go play a quick announcement The revolution in Rojava is a beacon of hope for the world, putting direct democracy and feminism into practice on a broad scale. This radical attempt at social transformation now faces huge challenges, including daily attacks by the Turkish military with little outside recognition or aid. Show your
2: support for Rojava by joining North Syria Solidarity or ness
5: nes and help ensure the survival of this inspiring experiment in
2: social change. N E S sends aid, raises awareness and builds solidarity.
0: Get involved at www.nesolidarity.org.au. N E S is a 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And um, we'll get to kind of um, spend the next 15 minutes... Kind of covering a mix of kind of news stories, some that have come from the kind of mainstream media, and some that I guess have been directly drawn from, um, the pages of Green Left in terms of, um, articles that have actually come out and news that have come out this week. Now, the first news story, and, um, this has been kind of reported in some of the, the kind of mainstream, uh, in the mainstream media, but this is a, a kind of very positive development, um, and it's actually, in a sense, it's actually a victory, um, a, um, for, for, for the social movements and, um, and that of the First Nations rights, movement. But um probably people might have been aware, um a lot of us, um, when we we're on lockdown, probably the one thing that we actually did <laughs> the one thing that forced us to go outside was this very large Black Lives Matter protest that was called in June twenty twenty. Um and this was in this was a protest that was called by the First Nations community uh and it was called in a sense in solidarity with um, the The massive kind of black lives matter um, protests um, that were happening in the United States, and it was a way of kind of linking the kind of issues of first nations self determination and that of um, the black lives matter movement um, in the united states and I think potentially at the time there was also possibly some other things that were also happening um, within within the um, first nations movement at the time that probably was i think uh, focused away but i don't i don 't think my memory sort of goes as far as uh, is, that, is that clear on that but one of the things was, because we we're all in lockdown, there was very kind of heavy kind of restrictions. Um, in fact, probably feels funny sort of recapping this, because sometimes we actually forget, um, we forgot, um, how, probably how strict some of these lockdowns were. Not that we're, not that I'm arguing against them necessarily in, in that hindsight, but it's just, um, it's just sort of an interesting sort of experience, um, looking back at it. But basically, um, the, the organizer of, of this protest and, One of the things to make clear as well is one of the great things that was done about this protest is despite the fact that we're on lockdown and that involved thousands of kind of people coming out together on the streets... The protests were organized in a, in as COVID safe way as possible. You know, everyone was masked. Um, the organizers made sure that, you know, people had hand sanitizer. They made sure they tried to do their best to socially distance. But of course, yeah, the, the general expectation was that everyone was kind of wearing masks. And of course, there was a big contrast in this protest, I remember, um, compared to, uh, compared to the sort of anti-lockdown, anti-free, um, and um, pro-freedom um, protests, where you know, while they were protesting in lockdown, most the majority of them weren't, um, weren't wearing masks, and in a sense, they were. It was in a sense, <laughs> they weren't, weren't really acknowledging the threat of COVID at all. Now. Basically, because this protest was um was organized during those those strict lockdown, the the organizers of the protest were hit with very um with quite stringent sort of charges. Um I don't have I, I don't really have the legal expertise to really explain what the charges were, but really probably the most important news story really to come out of that is that all the kind of charges that were brought against um um, the the organizers of the black lives Matter protest, which included first nations activists Mariki Onis and Crystal McKinnon um you know have all been withdrawn by the Victorian police um so i think that is that is quite this is a very, quite a positive development i think it's a posi- it is a win you know for civil liberties um, because at the end you know the the argument that was made was you know when it comes to um, when it comes to the whole issues of first nations justice you know f- protesting for those issues is in a sense an example, was in a sense an example of something that is essential, um, because in a sense well, the, the only way, you, the only reason you were allowed to go out at the time was if you had an essential reason. Um, yeah Dane, do you had any sort of comments you kind of wanted to add?
3: Oh, just sanity has prevailed and of course those charges should be dropped and uh, yeah, I guess it's it was a few years ago, but it's, it's, it's not possible to overstate the scale of those protests. They were absolutely massive here and around the world. And, uh, I look forward to us getting back to that soon. We've just had another massive invasion day protest. And yeah, the more of that mobilization we can see, the better. That's, that's going to. That sort of mobilisation is what will help secure deep and meaningful change, and it's great that there's people like Lydia Thorpe who'll provide a, a voice to those um, type of actions.
0: Now, the next kind of story I kind of want to talk about, um, and this has obviously been something that has dominated the kind of headlines, but um, it's and it's actually very tragic. But it's um, Turkey and Syria have been hit with a very massive kind of airf- earthquake um and in fact it's been so devastating um in its scale um that right now um i just looked um looked at what i guess the current sort of headline right now but currently the death toll is past has passed twenty thousand people um in fact yeah this isn't this is actually incredibly um tragic in in a lot of ways and you know or our solidarity to um you know to the families and and people within Turkey and Syria who have been affected um and of course that's not even um taking into account the scale of the destruction um you know of people's homes and uh infrastructure and also the people who have been injured and hospitalized um as a result of this but one one thing that um um, what what um, that, ha- that Green Left has I guess, been attempting to do is, I guess, been trying to raise um, some awareness around um, around um, some of the impact that it's had on on the Kurdish community. Um, so this is a this is a, um, an interview um, that um, Green Left did, um, which is only just a short kind of interview, but basically. Green left um, spoke to Gulafan Alan, who is the co-chair of the Federation of the Democratic Kurdish Society within Australia, and they they speak about the kind of twin earthquakes that have devastated Kurdish towns and cities in Turkey and north and east Syria, and of course she. She kind of explained that the Turkish and Syrian governments were, have not been sending urgently needed emergency aid. So, yeah, I'm going to go play um, play this interview. Um, I'll just probably play just a quick announcement just so I can quickly get it ready. But you're listening to Green Left Radio on freecr 855 AM.
6: If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on one 300 500 That's one 300 500 Wellways supports 3CR. How bad
4: is this earthquake and uh, which parts of Kurdistan have been the worst affected?
7: Uh, yes, the earthquake is really bad. Uh, the worst earthquake has happened for the last 100 years, uh, Peter, and it has hit twice. The last is uh, 7.6, and there's uh, a lot of cities in Kurdistan is been affected. The major cities that affected is uh, Marash, Hazarcık, Elbistan, and Diyarbakır, and uh, Antep, Adıyaman. These are the major cities are been, uh, you know, badly affected. But there is like a lot of cities has been, you know, uh, affected. Like we can like the, the, the death toll are really, really big. Uh, the Turkish state is not uh, sending any aid or help to these cities because of the, you know, because of being Kurdish cities and they don't get any help so the global help has been uh, started for the earthquake.
4: Has there been any serious impact uh, from the
6: earthquake in Rojava?
7: Yes, it has been uh, there is impact in uh, Rojava city, Afrin, Sereqani, uh, Shahba it, it's been affected badly as well. And there is a death toll ri- rising there. Italy, the death toll is rising in uh, uh, Rojava as well as uh, like Turkey, Syrian government is not sending any help either in Rojava.
2: How can uh, Australians okay. help?
7: Okay. Uh, the, uh, there is a help uh, like crisis desk has been uh, has been started. In Turkey, uh, HDP has started this campaign. Uh, in Europe, Red Moon that how we call Heybasor uh, has started a help campaign, help line, and we do have uh, bank accounts that we can share like to for people in australia for them to send help to because we really need uh, help from australia we really need help from australian people that, to do anything they can do help for this earthquake and also so we're going to have a, um, a charity night uh, this saturday night in Demo- uh, new southwest democratic kurdish community center at 7 uh, p.m. We will have the charity night uh, on Saturday night. Everyone to attend this charity night and they can, you know, do any help they can do for this earthquake. We really, really need the help.
5: Have you had any... uh, The Kurdish
7: people need help.
5: Have you had any contact with the Australian government to speak about helping?
7: Yes, we had and uh, actually we are on our way to, you know, there at the moment. We will bring up this matter uh, in, in Parliament as well today. We're definitely going to ask Australian government to help the earthquake in Turkey, especially Kurdish cities.
0: All right. Just listening to um, to an interview with a short one with Gulafan Alanda, the, the co-chair of the Federation of Democratic Kurdish Society in Australia. Now, as she kind of announced as she kind of mentions, um, there's currently, I guess, an appeal that's currently, um, currently happening, um, in terms of, to terms of, um, Kurdish organizations, including the Kurdish Red Crescent, have, have begun collecting donations to help the victims of this disaster. There is actually going to be an event, um, this Saturday, which I will be actually announcing in, in the, uh, in the Green Left activist calendar later on as part of the program. But basically, um, there is at the Kurdish, um, Democratic House, which I'm just... Um the Kurdish Democratic Community Centre of Victoria, which, so I'm just actually trying to find the, which is in Pasco Vale. They're going to be hosting an event with, um, Baruz, um, Boshani, which is at 36 Faulkner Road, Pasco Vale 3044, which is just walking distance of Pasco Vale station. But at the Baruz Boshani event, um, that the Kurdish community is hosting, um, at 7pm, um, this Saturday, um, they are going to be launching a bit of a fundraising campaign, um, for, for Victims of of this of this earthquake, and yeah, we like to extend all the kind of solidarity. There is also a bank account um, that you can kind of donate to as well. Um, but I guess instead of um, instead of just reading out the sort of details, which will probably be hard to sort of capture um, for our listeners. I am going to attach a link, um, to the fundraiser when we upload, um, the Green Left podcast. And also I will be posting a link on, on the Green Left, on the Green Left, um, radio, um, on the Green Left Radio Facebook page. Um, so yeah, I think we, I like to kind of send all the kind of solidarity. Um, I think this is going to be, yeah, the impacts of this, of this disaster, I think are going to be very long reaching. And I think, I think all the support has to be given to um, to Turkey and Syria in terms of reconstruction and rebuilding um, following this disaster.
3: Yeah, 100%. I'm just posting a link now. So, yeah, particularly for, for Rojava, for those Kurdish communities, um, they're not really, as, as was mentioned in that interview, they're not really being supported by either the Turkish or the Syrian governments at the moment. Uh, they're not really getting any mainstream media coverage, so grassroots support is really important right now for those uh, communities in in Rojava, those those Kurdish communities. So, uh, yeah, check out the the Facebook link or go to the Green Left page, and you can find that article and donate to to help those Kurdish Kurdish communities uh, right now.
0: Okay, um, I'm just gonna go. I think I'll play a quick few. Um, actually, I think maybe we might have just a bit of time to play. Let me just thinking. Um, because we sort of don't really have much time to play. Um, an interview. Oh wait, to play. Um, to do a, a news story. So maybe I'll just play a quick announcement, and maybe we'll actually go straight into our second interview for the program. Um, you're listening to Green Radio on FreeCR eight five five AM. We've got
5: a common enemy, the same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel, it's the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity, it's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle.
2: You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au.
0: All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR eight five five AM. So, good morning, Naomi. Hello. Morning. Okay, I'll just pass it on to Zane to introduce you.
3: Yes. Um, welcome. Um, listeners, we've got Naomi Hodgson on the line. Naomi is a founding member of the new iteration of Rising Tide which is this kind of freshly rebooted staunch climate activist uh, climate action group based in Mullabimba, Newcastle uh, and that area, as listeners may know, is home to the world's biggest coal port. Rising Tide utilizes non-violent direct action tactics to protest ongoing coal exports. And Naomi's a spokesperson for Rising Tide and they're having a camp for climate action up there in Mullabimba, Newcastle from the 14th to the 17th of April. Welcome, Naomi.
2: Thanks so much for having
3: me, Zane. Oh, it's bloody, it's bloody good to have you on the air. Um, So, can we just begin, actually, before we get to the upcoming Camp for Climate Action, can you just give us a bit of an overview of the history of Rising Tide?
2: Yeah. So, Rising Tide was one of the first grassroots climate groups in Australia and probably the first to use non-violent direct action tactics, um, particularly on the coal industry. We were originally a bunch of forest activists and then started working together as Rising Tide um, on the coal export industry in 2005 and we held dozens of actions, countless from um, small to large groups of people and were highly active until about 2012. Um, and then our founding members started working on different ca- climate campaigns and research and, um, yeah, the group fizzled out about then. So we reformed and relaunched in November last year because we saw... A big gap in the climate movement for the type of radical but diverse and inclusive actions um, that Rising Tide used to facilitate, and also because, obviously, um, the time to prevent catastrophic climate breakdown is absolutely running out, and we've reformed to do what is necessary.
3: Yeah, 100%. And, of course, the, the original iteration of Rising Tide linked up with other grassroots climate groups to organize the the first Australian camp for climate action way back in two thousand and eight i uh, can 't believe that was fifteen years ago. Um, can you just remind listeners of some of the some of what happened at, at that climate camp back then?
2: yeah, it really was an amazing time for the movement. Um, yeah, first one in 2008, it was massive. There was around 500 people camping in a public park right in town in Malimbimba, Um with a massive program of workshops and forums on climate issues and solutions and movement strategy. And the final day, the fifth day, was a massive non-violent direct action involving over a 1,000 people targeting one of the three coal export terminals that make up the world's biggest coal port here, um, the one that was happened to be walking distance from our camp,
0: um, and it was
2: a really incredible day. It was diverse and festive and colourful, and about 60 people from um, from the crowd, including myself, um, chose to put ourselves in an arrestable position and go over the fence into the rail line where a coal train had already been stopped because of knowledge of our action. So we held out coal exports for the entire day, and I think, yeah, everyone was really empowered and inspired by... What we could achieve when we come together.
3: Yeah, brilliant. Now, can you give us, uh, can you give listeners a bit of an overview about the Camp for Climate Action that's happening this year? What's going to be, uh, on the agenda? I'm guessing more workshops, more, uh, nonviolent direct action.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Climate Camp 2023, uh, will be from April 14th to 17th. It's about regathering and rebuilding force amongst the grassroots climate movement. It's to listen and skill share, network and strategize, and build power for bigger actions that are coming that um, we're planning to follow. Um, so it'll be three nights and four days of camping and community living, um, and um, workshops and forums, forums on issues relevant to the movement and what we need to do to ramp up our power and start to win on our demands. Um, so. It's going to be a bit shorter than the original one. Um, and the third day will be a mass nonviolent direct action targeting coal exports. So I can't talk about the specifics of that plan, but there will be many different types of roles for people, including those who want to contribute with fun, art or theatre, or for those who are less mobile or people with small kids, and also for people who choose to put themselves in a position to disrupt the industry um, and who are willing to be arrested.
3: Yeah, nice. Um, can, I, I'd be keen to hear some of your reflections as someone who's been involved for heck, nearly, you know, it's, it's coming up on 20 years, uh, uh that we've been plugging away doing this stuff. Um, I'd be keen to hear some of your reflections on these really big climate strikes that we saw around the world, uh, just before the pandemic, including in Mother Bimba, Newcastle.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think that was an incredible time of momentum for climate action in Australia and across the world, um, with like a great diversity of the population coming together, including um, it from the unions, which really brought a lot of power. But I think it was the moral authority that young people have on this issue to lead the climate movement, and their call to action behind those strikes was just so powerful. So. In Newcastle we had about 10,000 people striking and marching together and I think that made it per capita one of the biggest mobilisations in the country and it was really incredible. Um, it shows a breadth of concern um, on climate and reflects what we, what we know from polling that's been seen consistently across the years and growing that a majority of Australians are concerned about climate change um, and about 25% consider themselves to be alarmed. Um, so yeah, the pandemic has definitely dampened the momentum that was generated at that time back in 2019. Um, but since then there's been the mega fires and the mega floods and we know that Australia's, um, climate alarm has actually deepened. So yeah, in terms of, um, rebuilding social movement momentum, that's going to take work and, um, we're here in Rising Tide in Mamabimba to do that work.
3: Can I, um, Naomi, could you, like, I'm, I'm living in Melbourne these days, but I'm originally from Newcastle. Can you just <laughs> emphasize for listeners the extent to which uh, activists have this opportunity open to converge upon Malabimba and physically block literally the world's biggest coal port? I feel like that's a bit underutilized. It's it's <laughs> yeah. like a big sitting duck. Rising Tide has done all this groundwork knows where all of the uh Achilles heels are as it were, and the good spots to get in there and jam things up um the it, it's it can't just be up to rising tide like I think Newcastle activists punch above your weight and should be very proud of the work you do, but there's so much potential if people from across the land can converge upon Newcastle, isn't it?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. I like the way you put it, a big old sitting duck. Uh, yeah, totally. Um, the world's biggest coal port um, and happens to be in a major population centre um, on the East Coast, like sort of, um, you know, right between, um, right within our, most of Australia's population. So um, it, it's very accessible. It's a great target. It's, depending on the year and how much coal is exported in the year, it's like close to um, equal of Australia's entire domestic emissions in terms of emissions equivalent. Once that coal is exported and burnt um, and the impact, of course, um, doesn't discriminate um, on the climate, it's burnt in this world, <laughs> enters our atmosphere, changes our climate, comes back to us as fires and floods and other climate disasters and also undermines global Global climate justice around the world. So, uh, it's, it's a brilliant target and one that has the power to build the, the strength and diversity, um, and power and numbers of the climate movement, um, if, if we use it. So yeah, that's what rising tide is reform really to do. Like we need a, a flagship, um, target and a landmark conflict. We need something that can unite people and build mass numbers that um, can have the power to shift the politics and break the um, the control of the fossil fuel industry over our democracy. So, um, yeah, the, the tool that we're using this time to build that power is um, a climate defence pledge. Um, we've launched, launched this pledge and we're seeking 10,000-plus people uh, to commit to engage in nonviolent direct action against coal exports or to actively support those who do so. Um, so it's an, a way of inspiring engagement because um, we consider that the call for 10,000 people um, will inspire people through safety and power in numbers and we also think that this is the type of movement scale that is needed um, to really shift the politics and create transformational change in the, in the short amount of time that we have left.
3: Mm. Yeah, that's a good point you raise about safety and numbers because the New South Wales government has been really clamping down horrendously on, on climate and environment activists in the last couple of years, haven't
2: they? Yeah, that's right. It's, um, it's, it is horrendous. And, yeah, the, I think that the pandemic has contributed to the dynamics where there's been small numbers of people taking um, highly disruptive action. And um, one of the things we're trying to do is, is get back to the scale where there's, like, hundreds and then thousands of people just, um, participating um in disruptive action or actively supporting those who are doing so because it's then that we will have the power to materially disrupt and impact um their operations but also even more significantly to have the social license to shift the politics and win the support of the broader public um for the actions that we're doing and um and make it um politically untenable to continue to support fossil fuel expansions or the continuation
3: of our current fossil fuel dependence. Hmm. Um, now, how um, can people in uh, Naam, in, in Melbourne, or in other parts of uh, the country, how can they help promote uh, the upcoming Camp for Climate Action? Is there posters uh, or, or stuff that people can get posted out? How can they, how can they get that from, from rising tide?
2: Yeah, um, yeah, there are posters. Um, yeah, if you get in touch with us through our Facebook page or our website, um, so it's Rising Tide Newcastle on Facebook or um, risingtide.org.au, um, we can um, send out materials. Um, but also just hit going if you can make it, if you can make it to Mullumbimba Newcastle um, in April, hit going on the Facebook event, invite people in your networks, um have conversations to spread the word, organise a little contingent. Um, we don't expect it's going to be at the scale that it was in 2008 because the movement is at a different point, but it is going to be uh, um, a massive step forward towards building the power that we need to um, rebuild the diversity and um, breadth of um, disruptive class, grassroots climate action in this um, continent. Um, so, yeah, just getting involved and starting that process. And I'll also do a shout-out to a, the um, one of the events that we're planning later in the year, which is um, a two-day blockade of the coal port. Um, it, there's been 11-day-long blockades so far, happening since 2005 up until last year. And they're always, like, really fun and inherently disruptive protests where hundreds of people paddle out in kayaks and... All types of vessels on the coal port, um, really safe and inclusive as well, and um, a great event. But yeah, now the now the port corporation um, they just close off coal, coal exports for the day, and the police know know what's happening, and um, it's disruptive, but it's not escalatory. So um, in November, um, mid November, we haven't set the exact dates yet, but we're going to do a two day blockade of a coal port and and really escalate. So we're hoping that people will come from all over the country to participate in that um, big event
3: as well. Yes, brilliant. All right, well, um, thanks heaps for speaking with us this morning. Uh, More strength to your arm. And, uh, yeah, keep uh, keep plugging away and hopefully people from across the land can mobilise for climate camp from April 14
2: to 17. Awesome. Thanks so much, Zane.
3: Cheers. All right, yes, Naomi Hodgson there from Rising Tide up in uh, Malabimba, Newcastle. And we are just going to have a brief announcement and then go to the activist calendar.
5: I think 3CR is the voice of the people, speaking back to the establishment and
1: telling
0: them what they think, and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. Alright, you're green left, uh, you're listening to green left radio on free CR 855 AM and now it is time for the green left activist calendar. Now, um just announcing um, some events that are coming up, Um, um there are some um, the first event I want to highlight, I'm not sure if it's actually sold out. Um, it's happening tonight. That it's actually an event with, uh, it's a film screening of, um, with Baruz Boshani at the Acme Theatre. Um, and it's happening at 7pm tonight at Cinema One. But the only thing is, yeah, it has sold out, unfortunately. So it's, I just checked. So unfortunately, yeah, um, probably a bit of a pointless advertising that. Um, but it is happening. So you can note that it is. Um, on Saturday, February the 11th, there's going to be a rally, Permanent Protection for All Refugees, No More Empty Promises, and this um, this event has been organised by Tamil Refugee Council, and I think it's also organised by another refugee activist group, um, who I think has just recently formed, I'm just getting the title, um, it's titled the Young Refugees Collective, um, so that will be an important kind of protest to kind of go to. And then at, um, 7pm, there is going to be, uh, a special event with Baruz Bashani at the Kurdish Democratic House. Um, it's at 36 Faulkner, um, Faulkner Road in, um, Pascoe Val, Victoria, 3044. And it's actually, it's going to be happening from 6.30. Um, so yeah, I think that's going to be, um, I don't, that, that event is not ticketed. So I think, and it, and it is quite a big venue. So definitely recommend getting along to that. And then on Monday, February the 20th, um, there's going to be a very important forum, especially in the context of um, Lydia's uh, resignation, a public forum being hosted by Green Left and Social Science titled Sovereignty, Streety and First Nations Justice. And this is going to be happening at the Drill Hall, 26 Ferry Street in the city. And that is just walking distance, um, just off, on, off, um, around the corner from Victoria Markets on Elizabeth Street. Um, but yeah, I think this is going to be a very good sort of opportunity to hear from, um, from both Uncle Gary Murray, um, who is a local indigenous elder and Lydia Thorpe, to really talk about their views on what is, I guess, the way forward in terms of sovereignty treaty and First Nations justice. And probably another good thing about this event is you, we will get to hear their views completely unfiltered um, and not distorted by, you know, by by the media. Because I think in the context, I think of the discussion that is happening around um, Lydia Forbes, I think there is a lot of distortion um, mm. happening from both you know, sections of the um, Labour Party and
3: of yeah, the court so media. so many just real simplistic characters of what her views are and what she apparently represents. Um, it'd be much better to hear it from Lydia's mouth directly. Mm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that forum for that reason.
0: Um and now the um the other thing to note is there's um the Resistance Bookshop is going to be having uh, a big uh, a book sale, twenty five percent everything. Um and it's gonna include new books, second hand books, T shirts, badges. Um and that's gonna be happening from February the twenty fifth to um on Saturday, February the twenty fifth to Saturday, March the fourth. Um and it's gonna be and it's gonna include and it will Saturdays will be open 10am to 6pm. Sundays will be closed, but Mondays to Fridays will be open from 11am to 6pm. And that will just be at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street in the city. Um, and then on Saturday, February 25th, um, there's gonna be, uh, there's gonna be an important, I think another, a rally organised by Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. Um, it's gonna be at Sunshine Station, um, and and it's titled "Migrants and Refugees Welcome, Nazi Gyms Are Not." Now, I think this protest has been organised in response to the fact that they have, there are some gyms. Um, there's, a, I think, there's a particular gym that has been a bit of a hangout spot for. White supremacists and other sort of far right figures um, within, within the Western suburbs. Um, so this rally is kind of like an opportunity for kind of people to kind of come together and say, you know, we don't accept this. Um, do you because yeah,
3: any- that's a really multicultural working class area and that's not acceptable that fascists think they can just pick some place as their hangout spot in the middle of this very multicultural
0: part of Melbourne. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think it's it's definitely very good that um, CAF has called this protest. Mm. Um, now there'll be another pro- um, on Friday, March the seventeenth. Um, there's going to be um, there's going to be the National Day of Climate Action at two p.m. at the at the State Library, um, and then on. Saturday, March the eighteenth, there's going to be a rally um, organised by the Anti Orcus kind of collective, um, which is titled "A Call for Peace, Sh- um, Truth, Not War: Stop the Orcus Warlines," and that's going to be happening at one pm um, at the State Library. All right, so we just have a few, um, we have a few minutes, uh, some time. Um, that's it for the kind of actors, kind unless there's another event that I haven't highlighted yet.
3: Not that I can think of.
0: Well, one thing I was going to I was thinking um this is just some sad news on the on the kind of band kind of front um but the um rock band the band um yeah, Camp Cope has um, ba- um has are uh, breaking up um and they're actually going to be playing their final show um well, one of which has already sold out. Um, it's on, I think it's going to be on March the 18th or March the 11th. I think it's on March the 11th. So they're playing their final show as part of the Brunswick sort of music festival at March 11th. Um, the tickets for their evening show has sold out, but they have actually just announced that they're going to be playing, um, they're going to be playing an earlier show in the afternoon a family friendly kind of show um that will be yeah happening at march um same um same date but just in an earlier time at the Anastonian house so I thought i would just actually play one of um play one of their songs um running with the Hurricane. um you're listening to Green Left Radio
1: I can't get out of this hole I found. I've seen the light, it's not going out. She talks me.
0: You're listening to Green Left Radio. And we're going into our final interview for the program. And we're very happy to be joined today by John Quelsch, um, who is actually part of a group of activists initi- initiating uh, a Geelong and Southwest Victorian IPAN, um, Independent and Peaceful Australia branch. Um, I think it's actually probably one thing to significantly note. Um, I think it is quite important um, initiating a bit of an anti-war kind of collective um, within Geelong because... Geelong is actually its actually the place where Richard Miles, our very own Defence Minister, is actually based. Um, so um, I think it's very good that the activists are, are setting this up. So good morning, John.
5: Good morning, Jacob, and uh, good morning to all your Green Left listeners.
0: Um, to start off, John, can you I guess give a bit of a brief overview of the context of I guess why you've um why you're coming together with activists um to kind of set up a kind of independent and peaceful um, australia network branch, and I guess why is it that important that we build an anti war movement within within Geelong?
5: Yeah, a very good question. Uh, Jacob, I, I think a number of activists in Geelong over the last uh, several months have been becoming increasingly aware of the, the danger of war. Uh, we've got this very nasty conflict in Europe at the moment between uh, Russia and Ukraine, with uh, Russia, of course, being the aggressor. But if you look at the geopolitical political situation behind that, that you can see that it could well degenerate into a European-wide war. In fact, it's operating as somewhat of a proxy war at the moment of the United States against Russia. The United States has had uh, long-held ambitions to isolate Russia and uh, to defeat it, I suppose, on the world stage. So uh, that awareness is... Uh, very much led us to believe that uh, the uh, energies for a peace movement need to be generated. And as you say, particularly in Geelong, because this is the home of the Minister for War, Richard Miles. So uh, that's where we're coming from. I suppose it's an understanding that uh, the world superpower, the US, the imperialist power that has dominated the, the geopolitical uh, next an economic exploitation of the world for the last seven de- decades is now in its death throes. History has taught us, uh, Jacob, that when a superpower is in its death throes, that's when it's most likely to become quite irrational. Um, and, uh, you know, that's we're, we're really worried about this war degenerating into much more than just a regional conflict and potentially becoming a worldwide conflict
0: all right so um i guess what can you give us can um i'm i'm aware that you're going to be organizing i guess a bit of a public forum um and it's it's going to include um clinton fernandez um um who is actually probably some of our listeners are aware is quite quite a prominent you know quite a prominent um con Prominent writer and thinker on a lot of these um, international kind of issues, um, and yeah, can you t- can you give us a, tell us a bit about this public forum that is um, going to be the launch of this of this um, independent peaceful Australia network branch? And I guess what are you sort of hoping to sort of get out of the meeting?
5: Yeah, well, we you know we've already sort of got a uh, uh, an interim committee, uh, uh, and it was formed under the basis of the independent peaceful Australia network, IPAN but it also has a strong anti-AUKUS focus as well. Um, But, of course, we're hoping to to launch it at this meeting that's happening this Sunday, the 12th at uh, 1.30 in the Geelong West Town Hall. And if any of your listeners are at all interested in coming, they won't be disappointed because we do indeed have Professor Clinton Fernandez who is a pretty uh, powerful speaker on issues of anti-imperialism and the need for Australia to have a far more independent stance on world stage, particularly in foreign policy and defence. And he makes some very, he will make some very cogent arguments to that effect. He recently uh, had a book published called Sub-Imperial Power, Australia's Role in the International uh, Arena. And at the moment, it's a bestseller. It's very accessible. It's not overly, um, heavily academic. And it's very easy to digest. Basically, I suppose the uh, content of that discusses Australia's unquestioning support for US-sponsored wars, which, as we know, uh, caused untold suffering to many peoples across the world. It's unleashed enormous environmental destruction. And of course it increases the risk of Australia becoming a nuclear target and at the same time it undermines Australia's international reputation and its ability to advocate for peaceful diplomatic solutions in uh, in situations where war is pressing. So, you know, at the present time, we know the Albanese government is planning to further integrate our military forces into the US war machine, and that's very disturbing. Uh, They're also intending to spend billions of dollars on US advanced nuclear weapons, including, of course, nuclear submarines. What in the hell would Australia need nuclear submarines for, Jacob? um, In fact, uh, we wouldn't be able to build them here We won't be able to service them because of their advanced technology. They will be really effectively under the command of U.S. uh, military forces. Um, But, of course, they're designed as an offensive weapon, not a defensive weapon. They're designed as a weapon to take war to foreign shores. And I think most people that are thinking, uh, thoughtful in Australia, realise that the U.S.'s real target is China, uh, it wants to advance the war on China. You can hear the hysteria going on. The present time, our mainstream media spreads the message daily about the dangers of the imminent Chinese war. The US is absolutely determined that it is not usurped economically by the US uh, by China, and will do everything in its power as a uh, as a falling superpower to uh, to prosecute that case. In in the case of Australia, it's actually captured Australia's foreign policy and defence policy to use for its own purposes. In effect, Australia will become, if you like, uh, an aircraft carrier, a very large aircraft carrier, a forward base in the South Pacific to prosecute that war on China. So we want to spread the message that, uh, for a start, a lot of Australian people are not overly aware. They realise that the war... Is, is somewhere else and perhaps not something that is likely to come to their shores. We think otherwise. So I suppose it's a, 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 an opportunity to raise consciousness, to raise awareness, and hopefully to recruit some people that want to come on board the effort to spread the anti-imperialist message, to take the strong message to the Australian government, in our case in Geelong, directly to Marles, um, that we want a, a more independent foreign policy we demand a more independent policy on the world stage so that we're not totally captured in, in and integrated into the u s war machine
0: um can you um what can you tell us um can you give us a bit of kind of details um, of i guess of this public meeting um and and also yeah. for, and also for those who are kind of listening, I mean, how can people get involved? And also what are, I guess, the kind of fine details of the meeting in terms of the venue and, and, and that of the date?
5: Yes, yes. So, uh, it's the 12th, this Sunday coming, 1.30 p.m., the Chelong West Town Hall, which is a, a very well-known institution. You just have to Google it and, uh, you'll find where it is on the map. It's fairly central to Geelong. Uh, uh the meeting will only last uh, an hour at most, but uh, at the end of the meeting, we're planning to uh, invite people to stay on, to plan the first action um, uh, outside Richard Miles's office, which is planned for Friday the 24th of February. Um, on Friday the 24th at 4 o'clock, uh, uh, hopefully a large group of uh, Geelong citizens will take take their case uh, to Richard Miles and demonstrate their intent to see a more independent Australia outside his office. So we're hoping to recruit a number of people. At the end of the the meeting, after Clinton has finished his address and people have had adequate time to cross-question him on any issues they're concerned about, we will ask uh, people to stay on for a... uh, or um, a workshop uh, that will look at what we might do uh, to raise the issues that have come out of the meeting uh, at that uh, Miles demonstration. By the way, the Richard Miles demonstration on the 24th, on Friday the 24th of uh, February, is, uh, is aligned with two other demonstrations that are occurring across Australia, one in South Australia outside Penny Wong's office, and one in New South Wales outside of the office of the Prime Minister Albanese. All
0: right. Um, So, um, John, do you have, I guess, um, any kind of final comments that you'd kind of like to make to kind of conclude this um, this discussion?
5: Yes, I I think so. Uh, You know, just encourage people to uh, become more aware. As we know, the mainstream media has a narrative uh, that is pretty much uh, pro-US, and sometimes it's hard to see, uh, really understand what's going on. So raising awareness is the main thing. Maybe look for alternative sources of news and information, like your program, Jacob, which is a terrific program that exposes uh, what's going on behind the scenes. Um, And, you know, of course, we welcome anybody that uh, wants to join our ranks to Uh, broaden the peace movement. It is a peace movement, essentially. It is a peaceful movement. We we don't intend to carry our message with uh, undue aggression or violence or anything like that. We want to find peaceful ways of getting our message over to these politicians and making a difference. Of course, we uh, intend to follow up the, the meeting with not just this one action outside Miles action office, but... Many other peace activities uh, around the region. We're on Wadawurrung land down here, the land of the Wadawurrung people. Uh, And with respect to them, we do intend to be very active on many fronts. But it's all about consciousness raising. It's all about education. It's all about keeping the pressure on government to look at alternative foreign and defence policy uh, postures. Uh, Overnight, it was very disappointing to hear Penny Wong well, yesterday in the Parliament made an announcement that uh, that um, the war powers, uh, the war powers situation. There was an inquiry last year into uh, who, how the Parliament should uh, go about determining determining when and where Australian troops should be sent to war. Um, it was not very well publicised. There weren't that many submissions to that parliamentary inquiry, but it's about to be released. Yesterday, Penny Wong basically said that uh, it was the strong belief of her government, the Labour government, that the war power determination should remain with the executive. She means the Prime Minister. The Minister of Defence, Miles, and possibly herself will make the decision about whether young Australians are marched off to another American war. And we've been marched off to several wars over the last four decades. Jacob, you would be well aware, and none of those have ended well. Uh, and Thousands of Australian troops were killed or injured, and those wars achieved little more than the, of course, oppression of a number of uh, third world countries and, uh, of course, the mass killing of, of a great number of their population. So it's all about education. It's all about consciousness raising, and we intend to... Give it our best efforts, effort in Geelong. So if anybody out there wants to join our ranks, they're more than welcome.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much, I'm um, John. That was, um, right on time, um, in terms of, um, terms of the rest for our, um, the schedule of our program. So yeah, thank you very much yeah. for being on our program today. And yeah, looking forward to, um, to, to this, um, to this public meeting because I'm, um, yeah, I'm going to be attending my, uh, myself and I, I look forward to it. Uh,
5: that's great, Jacob. Look forward to seeing you on Sunday and thanks very much for the interview.
0: Good on you, John.
3: Uh, yes, John Quilter from the uh, IPAN uh, network in Geelong, Geelong in southwest Victoria.
0: Okay, so um, we're getting into probably... We're getting, I guess, into the kind of end of our program. I guess possibly maybe we'll just ha- say one last quick thing about, yes, that's what I mean. Um, Zane, if you wanted to kind of start it off, because this is personal for you, I, I
3: believe. It's very personal. Um, yeah, just a bit of shameless self-promotion. I've got a, um article in the latest Green Left with a very straight-up headline, which is, of course, the Liberal government knew robo-debt was illegal. Uh, back on my birthday, late in 2016, I received a $5,500 robo-debt. It was completely fraudulent and cooked up by the robo debt system. And it's pretty plain looking at the whole situation that the liberals knew senior public, um, you know, senior bureaucrats knew that this was illegal. And you can tell that they knew it was illegal by the simple fact that they didn't appeal any, any robo debts that had been stopped at the first stage of the administrative appeals tribunal. They didn't appeal those um, relinquishing or blocking of debts at the AAT2 level. And the reason they did that is if these debts were raised at that second tier of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, then from within its own judicial sort of subsystem, the Centrelink system would have said, this is illegal, you can't do it, you can't send out robo-debts, they're just speculative, they're not based on facts, you can't send them out to people. They didn't do that, and the reason they didn't do that is they knew it was illegal. So, um... There's been really... I've I've just been really disappointed by the commentary around RoboDebt uh, because, yeah, people either say, oh, gee, what a silly, naive mistake, or, yeah, they did it to raise money. No, they didn't do it to raise money. They did it to suppress wages, and that's been the whole long-term project of kicking the crap out of people on welfare is to suppress wages to make people undervalue their own self-worth, and it's disgraceful and disgusting. So good riddance to Alan Tudge, and, uh, may we long dance on his ashes, uh, but I guess it's really disappointing because what's really going to happen to these politicians and bureaucrats who knowingly prosecuted this illegal robo debt scheme? I'm, my guess is probably there's not going to be much punishment, if any, for these people. And that's really disgraceful because people committed suicide in the wake of getting robo debts, like, People should be punished for for implementing this illegal scheme. And, look, I'm, I'll be glad to be proven wrong, but I'll be very surprised if anyone is actually published, punished in any meaningful way for this illegal scam that was implemented by the government against vulnerable people.
0: Yeah. Thank you very much um, for that, Zane. I think that's probably a good note to end on. Um, yeah, we've got to keep up the fight um, to make, you know the likes of Alan Tudge um, accountable. Mm. Um, in fact, I think, I personally do believe that, you know, Alan Tudge should be set facing fa- something far more serious consequences than just simply resigning from Parliament. Mm. Um, anyway, I've got, we've got to conclude the program. You're listening to Greenleaf Radio. And thank all our listeners and thank all our guests. And, um, yeah, stay tuned for Earth Matters and you can tune in next Friday.
2: This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before
0: profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from their stummers. Arise, you prisoners of
3: want for reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of khan away with all your superstition. serve all masses arise we'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize that's right the, the commies, commies are back. back reds underneath your beds and that crack-